making our way through the book of Acts, discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Stephen, one of the seven guys chosen to be what many think is the the springboard for deacon ministry, these men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. These were guys that had been part of the, the congregation. And a, a need arose for some administrative tasks to be done so that the apostles could concentrate on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And, and the instructions were given to the people, hey, why don't you guys choose from among yourselves, not you know, get the experts from, from some other place or or look elsewhere, but just from among you. There are people right among you that can do this work. And, but here's the qualifications, and, and point them out, and, and the apostles laid hands on them and, and said, hey, we agree, and Stephen was one of those. And we saw he's more than just a table waiter, more than just a servant. God used him powerfully in preaching, and he was a man filled with the Word, and it ended up uh, costing him his life. He became the first martyr of the Christian church, and we saw his sermon so to speak in chapter 7 and that's yielded to the introduction of this man Saul uh, who we know is the apostle Paul he's now started a, a persecution a widespread persecution against the church in Jerusalem we'll come back to him later in chapter 9 so we're going to sort of leave his story but no the background is is that because of that persecution that's happening in Jerusalem because the people uh, God's people in Jerusalem are being chased down and hunted like an, wild animals would hunt their prey. That's what the word is used of Paul. He is hunting people like a, like a predator hunts prey. And so people are scattering. They're splitting town, hitting the road. But they're not hiding out, which is interesting to me. We pick up Philip's story. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, those who were scattered everywhere went preaching the Word. So they didn't go hiding out, laying low, keeping quiet. Wherever they went, they went everywhere. Scattered north, south, east and west from Jerusalem. And wherever they went, they went preaching the Word. Now, Philip's story is just one example of uh, what happened as they went out preaching the Word. They were pregnant with this, the seed of the Gospel. And as they got scattered out, it's like a farmer that sows seed. The seed has life in it. So as the farmer tosses the seed out, the seed hits the ground, and it, and it springs forth. It, it, it bears fruit. So they go out preaching. And Philip is, is sort of an example of this. Verse 5 says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. I love that last line. There was I want to be part of a city where there's great joy. In so many cities right now, there's great division, there's great anger, there's great bitterness, there's great trouble, there's great violence. But at this time, things are hopping in Samaria. And that's a direct result of the ministry of one man named Philip, who just said, you know, he just happened to go, and I say happened to go, tongue in cheek, happened to go to Samaria. Philip was, this is not the apostle Philip, this is the deacon Philip, the second in the list, Stephen and Philip. We'll have his story here in, in Acts chapter 8. He's not an apostle 
He's not, you know, a, a seminary grad. He's not some, you know, big wig on the preaching circuit. He's just a servant in the church. Just a guy helping to make sure that the widows got the food they needed. Just trying to meet people's needs. And, and look at the way God uses him. What, what did he do when he went there? He preached Christ to them. And that is the core of any good sermon. Preaching Christ. He didn't preach theology to them. He didn't preach Judaism to them. He didn't preach, you know, self-help to them. He didn't preach you know, any of these, you know, social justice to them. All of what we do here, everything that we say here, if Jesus is the Word made flesh, then every good sermon, every good message, every good opportunity and time in the Word comes back to one thing, and it's a person, not an ideology. It's a person, not a theology, so to speak. It's Jesus. And when he went, he, he, didn't, he didn't hide out. He didn't lay low. He preached Christ to them. And look at went along with that was, man, there were miracles being done. There was a lot of demon-possessed people in the area, and they're being set free, and people that were lame were being healed. I mean, so things are really hopping in that area. Now, the interesting thing about it is he is in Samaria. He's in Samaria. Now, to us, you go, yeah, so what? Big deal. Well, maybe if you've been around the Bible a little bit, maybe if you've studied your word a little bit, you understand that this is a huge deal. Remember, Jesus had said to them that they're going to be filled with, with power, baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to go and they're going to take the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus had told them, you're going to go to Samaria. Now, it took persecution to do it. The apostles are still hanging in Jerusalem. So Samaria is this place that Jesus says, hey, the gospel is going to go there. Now, why is that so radical? Think about it, and maybe you didn't know this, but Samaria is located to the north of Jerusalem. It's between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. So when a Jew had to go north from Jerusalem, they would not go through Samaria because there was a huge division, a huge hatred between Samaritans and Jews. So much so that they would avoid going to the north via the road that went through Samaria. They'd, they'd travel an extra few hours or 100 miles, whatever it might be, to get around Samaria to go up to the north because they didn't even, even the land of Samaria was to them soiled. This great, you think we've got troubles with racial tensions in our day. This was a huge, what you might call, racial tension. Well, how did that develop? Just a little bit of history. Back in the 700s B.C., Assyria conquered the northern, uh, northern part of, of Israel, or what we call Israel. There was Judah in the south, and there was the northern kingdom called Israel. And Assyria came and conquered them and took them all out uh, to Assyria, took them all away. And then they brought back to repopulate the area with Babylonians and other nations that they had captured. They brought these foreign people back into Samaria. So they would basically destroy any national identity that you had. So you'd be now living in Assyria, and the Assyrian people would send Babylonians and people of other cultures to live in that area. Well, they get there, they get repopulated into, this, into Israel, into Samaria, and there's lions attacking them. And they say, hey, wait a second, we don't know how to appease the gods of this land. For them, gods were geographical. A god had reign over a certain geography or geographical area. 
And so because things were going bad for them, they thought, well, you know, we need to figure out how to worship the gods here. And you know, before they got captured, before they had been taken away, the reason they were taken away is because they had fallen full scale into idolatry. Full scale into idolatry. So the Assyrians say, well, well, let's send back some of the priests we captured who already didn't know and who already were involved in, in idolatry. Let's send them back and they can teach the locals how to worship the local gods. And so there was this intermingling between the, the Israelites that had been taken captive and other cultures and there was idolatry. And for that reason, the Jews considered them what many call half-breeds. They were half-breeds. They were less than they were less than. And so this developed into this intense hatred, so much so that the, the Samaritans said, well, you know what, we need our own place of worship, you know, because we're not really welcome in the temple in Jerusalem, so let's build our own temple. And on Mount Gerizim, they built their own temple for worship. So you had this divided culture, this divided nation, and now divided religiously speaking. And still there are some Samaritans that exist today there in Israel. There's very few of them. But do you remember when Jesus made that trip to Samaria, who did he meet? He met the woman at the well. And he, she even says to him, what are you? You're a Jew. Why are you talking to me, a Samaritan woman? We should have no dealings with each other. That's how bad it was. We shouldn't even be talking because you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, let alone you're a guy and I'm a girl. And so they go on to have this discussion about her previous relationships. And, and what does she say to him at the end? Well, I recognize you're a prophet, and, and you guys say that Jerusalem's the place to worship, but our people worship on this mountain. And it was, she was speaking of Mount Gerizim. And think about this. All through the Bible, when he wants to make a story radical, he makes the hero a Samaritan. Because that would have been offensive. Think about the parable of the good Samaritan. Now that could be called the parable of the lousy religious Jews. But we don't call it that. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when Jesus told that story, it was mind-numbingly radical because Samaritans were not supposed to be the hero. And in that story, Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero. Think about the story of the ten lepers. Jesus, again, going through Samaria, he meets this little leper colony. And they say, oh, you know, can you, can you heal us? And he says, go, show yourself to the priest. And as they go... They're healed, 10 of them. But only one comes back, and Jesus says, and he's a foreigner, he's a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. And he came back to thank Jesus, while the other nine never came back to say thank you. So when Jesus tells those stories, there's a reason, there's a huge division, there's a huge uh, rift in between Jews and Samaritans, and now we see Philip preaching Christ to them, and them heeding the things he's saying. The Samaritan woman, remember, she already had a witness there. She already was telling other people. So the pump had been primed in a way years before. But now, Philip's ministry being profound there, successful there. And then verse 9 begins with the word but. You can, you can bet that whenever there's a great work of God, there will be a great opposition to that work or a great problem to that work and always and and i see it here i see it around the church it all satan how does satan work he works oftentimes through people that's that's how he works he works through the lives of people who will give him a place 
to be in control of their lives. And we're not just talking demon possession. We're talking about someone like Judas just to betray Christ. We're talking about false teachers in the body of Christ. So Satan, believe me, he is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. And do you think he just sits still and is thankful that the Word of God is going out? Oh, praise the Lord that God is working in Samaria. And that's why we hit this word but in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man, notice, is the great power of God. doesn't say has the great power of God. It says this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. As I was studying this passage last night, just reading it over, looking it over, there were a few things that jumped out at me, especially from these two paragraphs Uh, Number one was the number of times uh, the word giving heed is used. That's used a couple of times. They gave heed to the things spoken by Philip. They were giving heed to the things spoken of by Simon the sorcerer. Many have come to know him as Simon Magus, M-A-G-U-S, which means Simon the magician. And that's the word for sorcerer. It's the word magician. And we'll come back to that in just a second. The other word I see oftentimes here is the word astonished or amazed. And then the word mega, you can't see it here in in the English, but the word great is the word mega. So there's a lot of mega being, there's a lot of great things and people astonished. And you know, that can oftentimes produce some some power hunger. You know, when great things are happening and big things are happening, people want to get in on that. People want to be part of that. And so Simon, he had set up shop there in Samaria, almost, it seems, unopposed. This guy, you can bet he was charismatic. I mean, he was the whole package. He had developed a following. He was a great showman. You think about P.T. Barnum, the greatest show on earth. Look what it says about Simon. It says that he, uh, look at verse 9, that he claimed that he was someone great. So he wasn't beside talking about himself. Telling people how great he was. Now, don't you know you have to be careful when you meet someone who's willing to tell you how great they are? Shouldn't that be a sign of danger? I was just looking up an article in the uh, UK Daily Mail on the computer. And the article was interesting, and I think this won't be a surprise to you, but those that use the word I, myself, and me, those that use those words regularly in their language, tend to suffer from anxiety and depression more than others. Now that doesn't surprise us. We know that one of the things Christ rescues us from is self-centeredness. But beware when you tend to talk about yourself a lot and you have to catch yourself. You have to think about what you're saying. You have to listen to the words as they come out of your mouth. Do you practice that? Do you do that? Do you listen to yourself talk? Or do you just talk, talk, talk? Because usually when we're talking to someone else, we're so busy thinking about what we're going to say next that we miss what they said. Let me tell you a secret. If you will have no end of friendships 
if you are a person who asks people about themselves. Because the general person in the world wants to talk about themselves. So if you are a person that says, hey, I'm not going to talk about me, I'm not, you know, there, there's an appropriate amount for conversation to talk about yourself, to, you know, to be, uh, again, part of the conversation. You can seem too aloof if you never talk about yourself. Uh, this is the challenge with preaching. You know, if um, in preaching, if I always talk about me and give examples from my life and my kids and my family, then you'll go, man, this guy is self-centered. But if I never give examples from my life or never give examples from my family, then you'll say, well, well this guy's so distant. He's cold and distant. So there is an appropriate amount of, of self-revealing in a conversation. But beware if you're always talking about yourself and especially if you're constantly having to tell people how great you are. Because if you have to tell people you are, you probably aren't. You may be what's called a narcissist. How many narcissists? You know what a narcissist is? Someone who's focused on themselves. How many narcissists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, it takes one. He or she holds the light bulb, light bulb while the whole world revolves around them. We, we chuckle, we laugh, but let me ask you this. Your Facebook posts... Oh, Steve, you're not, you're not going there, are you? Oh, yeah, I'm going there. I'm going there. How many of your Facebook posts are centered around what great thing you're doing or how great of a cook you are or how great of a thing you're involved in? Now, I get a reputation, and it's probably rightly earned, for being anti-Facebook. So I'm going to lay it down for the record today. I am not anti-Facebook. We have a Facebook account with our church which does, it's wonderful to have. It's a great way to communicate. We have friends around the world, and some of you have friends around the world. It's a great way to keep in touch. But it is a dangerous tool for selfish people. And it, it causes, it can cause a lot. Of, so I'm not against Facebook. It's a tool. The problem isn't the tool. The problem is the person using the tool. Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, had a tool. He was in touch with the occult and the world of darkness. Magic in, in, the old, or in, the, in the New Testament context, even the Old Testament context, was not the, you know, go down to the, to the magic store and buy a couple of card tricks you know, and learn a couple things online. This was directly connected to the power of the occult and the power of darkness. And interestingly, what did Philip do when he came? What, what were the powers and the miracles that were seen? He was casting out demons from people. Why do you think so many people in Samaria were possessed by demons? There was a lot of work and dabbling in the occult in Samaria and largely revolving around, likely, this guy, Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer. So he had a great following from the least to the greatest. They, they, he had them all fooled. He had them all wrapped around his finger. And he must have had some success, right? I mean, if he had really no power... Who would have followed him? He said he'd been doing this for a long time. He had quite a following. He had quite an entourage. And if he was powerless, if it was just, you know, falsity, then who would have followed him? So there must have been some genuine power. You, you know that the kingdom of darkness has power. It's limited power, but it's power nonetheless. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to be warned in the New Testament about lying signs and wonders. So now Philip shows up on the scene, and when he preaches things about the kingdom of God, Simon sees people responding to him. They're getting baptized, and there's no indication that as they believe and they get baptized that there was, 
that it was a, a substandard or subpar belief. They heard what Philip said about Jesus and about salvation and about the blood of Christ and about the Messiah. And they believed it. They said, yeah, we, we're in. We believe you. And they were getting baptized. And then Simon himself, it says, also believed. No difference in the wording that's used. People throughout history have argued whether or not this guy was really saved. And nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows for sure. Was he really saved or was he not? There are those that say the Bible doesn't say that he wasn't. I mean, it says he believed just like everybody else believed. And we get hung up. Listen, you and I get hung up. I've had more conversations about this, about once saved, always saved. You know, when a person gets saved and they fall away, were they ever really saved in the first place and then they fell away? Or maybe they weren't saved and, and then they now have to get saved. And I don't know. I can't see into a human heart. And those are things that I don't have to know. I don't have to know, were they saved and then fell away and apostatized, or, or were they never saved? In the, first? It doesn't, the end result is this person is not walking with the Lord. And so that's where I, I tend to focus. They're not walking with the Lord. Whatever reason, that's the result. So let's preach Christ to them. Let's tell them about Jesus. Let's call them to Christ. Whether it's a return or for the first time, I don't know. I don't care. All I know is if you abide in the vine, Jesus said, you got nothing to worry about. So if you're, if you're dabbling in the occult, if you're walking on the edge, if, if you're far from God, maybe you went forward at a Billy Graham crusade, or maybe there was a time in your life where you came forward at a church and then you've been far from God. Was I saved? Was I, not? I don't know if you were saved or not. All I know is you need to abide in Christ. And as long as you're abiding in Christ, no one will question it. There'll be fruit from repentance. So Simon, it says, he believed along with the rest of the group. And, he was, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. He sort of became, man, uh, Philip's sidekick. He said, hey, this guy, maybe he's a better magician than me. And he was amazed seeing the miracles. And the, and the word mega is in here too, the mega signs. And the word miracles, by the way, it's power, dunamis. The, he saw the power, and he saw the mega signs, and he said, oh, I got to get in on this. And he hangs out with Philip, and maybe Philip, you know, took him under his wing. What are, I mean, we would hold someone like that up. So, wow, this guy used to be dabbling in magic in the occult, and now he's a believer, and now he's going into ministry. We would go, yeah, but we'd be showing their testimony on our Facebook page. What happened? Verse 14, and this is a side note. It's not the primary focus here, uh, but it's interesting nonetheless. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, that's not the primary emphasis of the passage. We're going to get back to Simon seeing these things and, and what it does in his heart. But it is interesting nonetheless. So these people get baptized. They get saved. They, they uh, have this salvation experience. But... It's heard about in Jerusalem. Hey, guys, the word of God is bearing fruit in Samaria. And they send delegates from the apostles 
Peter and John, which is interesting because what happened the last time Jesus was not allowed to go into Samaria? They, had not, they didn't have a place for him to stay. They wouldn't welcome him in. What did, do you remember our sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of thunder? What did they want to do in Samaria? John said, Jesus, you mind if we uh, smite these guys? Why don't we call down some fire from heaven and burn them up? This, these Samaritans who wouldn't let you in. And now John is back to minister to and lay hands on the very believers that they're now believers that previously he wanted to destroy. How many times have you said in your life, man, I wish I could just get that guy. I wish God would just take them out. Maybe some of us have said, I wish the rapture would just happen now. And I'm with you. Amen. I wish the rapture, I'm ready to go. I got nothing to wait for. But what if the rapture had happened in 1975? How many of us would have been saved? Some of you would have been saved in 1975, not me. What if God answered that prayer for vengeance and took that guy, took your boss out or or took that ex-spouse out? You just have no idea how the Word of God could reach that person. And then the very person you wanted to be taken out, Jesus is actually taken in. And isn't that what we want? I mean, sometimes here, we get people coming in here, and you've had dealings with them in the community, and you're like, what are they doing here? This is my church. They can't come in here. Man, praise the Lord they're here. Praise the Lord they're coming to church. So it's interesting to see Peter and John now coming, and they prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting, for he has had, had, as yet he had not fallen upon any of them. This is a huge discussion about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can't ignore this passage. Now, I don't know what you believe today about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are those that believe that there is one work of the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, you receive the Holy Spirit in all of the fullness. That the whole, uh, you have, there's one experience and that's it. And others for good reason, say that, well, there's a secondary work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that right here. If we believe that it says they were believers, their work of the Spirit coming upon them, that's the word fallen upon, the E-P-E-P-I, the Spirit coming upon them, it didn't happen at the time of salvation. So you can hold on to whatever doctrine of the Holy Spirit you want to have today, but you can't argue with there was a time in history where the coming upon of the Holy Spirit was not at the time of salvation. It was was a secondary work. Because we want to put God in a box, as I said last week. And we say, well, now we see that Peter and John are going to lay hands on them. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. And so you start the church, the first church of the apostolic laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's how God does it. And you never read chapter 10 where Peter is preaching And during his sermon, this is every pastor's dream, during his sermon, the Spirit of God falls upon the people of Cornelius' house, and they get saved. They get baptized with the Spirit, and then they go, well, maybe we should baptize them in water. They were filled with the Spirit first, indicating that they were saved, and then they were baptized in water. Well, that's backwards. Well, maybe to you, not to the Holy Spirit. Maybe it doesn't fit into your doctrine. So personally, I think it can be both. Sometimes people at the time of salvation, 
filled with the Spirit too. For other people, myself included, it was a secondary uh, work of God in my life. And in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 10, there was no apostolic laying on of hands. Because some, well, the only way to receive the Holy Spirit is the laying on of hands. No! Otherwise, we've got to rip Acts chapter 10 out of the Bible. Read your whole Bible and let God be God. Let Him do what He wants to do, how He wants to do it. The important thing is that you are filled with the Spirit and you know that you are. There was no question. Look at this. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Spirit. He saw something happen. Was it speaking in tongues? Maybe. Was it they began to prophesy? They began to speak forth the Word of God? Maybe. We don't know. Evidently, the Holy Spirit didn't think it was important for us to know. All that was known was that, hey, there was no question they were filled with the Spirit. And Simon saw it, that there was a power of God working in their lives. And he, no doubt, jealous, no doubt challenged by the fact that Philip has this growing ministry in the area. People are being baptized into Christ and he's going, remember, they said, hey, this guy is the power of God. They, in Samaria, believed that Simon was somehow a manifestation of God. God was working in and through him. Now they get baptized with the Spirit and Simon sees this. And I love it. It offered them money. It literally speaks of right then. Right then. He says, hey, Philip, come here. Psst, come here. Can we talk for a minute? Yeah, what, what's up, Simon? Uh, how much? How much? What do you mean, how much? Look, I, I, got, some, I got some silver on me. Like, how, how much is it going to cost me? How much is what going to cost me? I want that power that you have. He doesn't ever say anything about wanting the God that he has. Although he's been baptized, he's confessed some sort of belief. I want to purchase that. I want to give me, and it's imperative. He's commanding him, give me this. And it's not the word dunamis for something that you do. It's the word exousia, which is authority. He saw Peter and John come, and he says, I want the authority not just the ability to do this, I want the right to do it. I want to buy the right to bestow on people spiritual things, spiritual gifts. I want the power. Isn't that funny about how that works in church? No one wants to show up to clean the bathrooms, but everybody wants to preach. Or everybody wants to be in charge. Or everybody wants to tell those in charge how they should be doing their job. Well, I don't want the responsibility, but I want the power to tell people what to do. And, I, and I, this is so interesting. This is where we get, as I said in my devotional, this is where we get the word in church history, simony. Have you heard of that, simony? And it speaks of the buying or selling something spiritual or a spiritual benefit. And it's really, really... Da- Anytime we start talking about money in the church, that's why people that serve God in leadership have to be people that are not susceptible to bribery. Because what if Philip said... Yeah, let's make a deal here. How much you got? Now, of course, he couldn't sell him the power because the power doesn't come from him. That's one of the reasons, by the way, one of the reasons you can't sell the power of God or or it's stupid to even think about it is because you don't own it. It's not yours. A second reason is 
if you wanted to sell something of God, and this doesn't just have to do with power, what if we sold communion? Or what if we sold, as they did in the early church, what if you could become a leader or a pope or a bishop by paying the highest price? That's how they did it in church history. That happened. Or selling indulgences so you could build the temple. What if we, what if we sold communion to build this church? Anyway, come take communion, put your money in the side here. Now, there's nothing wrong with being supported in ministry. Paul says that. Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. But we're talking about asking people for money, whether subtly or, or not so subtly. And there are those in, in the church, in traditional churches, that like to make sure that the pastoral staff knows how much they give so that when it comes time for people to be in positions, like, well... You know how much I give to this church, don't you, Pastor? I think I should be considered that simony. I think we should be part of... You're basically trying to buy your way into ministry. Or buy, What if we sold salvation? Could you do that? No, it's a free gift. Now listen, for me the challenge became weddings and funerals. It's a very common practice to... People ask me all the time, how much do you charge for a wedding? I don't charge for weddings. If you want to give something, put it in the offering box. Now, sometimes people will give me a gift. They'll put it in an envelope, and, and so I receive that. But I try to avoid though, anything where, where I serve this church in ministry and everything that that involves. And so I always tell people, my gift to you for your wedding is I do this, your service. Just I do it. I do it because you're part of the flock here. And that keeps me out of having to Figure out what you want for your wedding. I don't know. I'm terrible at buying presents. You know, it's funeral, same thing. You go to the funeral company, and the funeral company involves as part of their payment for the, for the funeral. People are hurting, and they've got to go through all these things they've got to pay for, and they include pastoral compensation. And I tell them, go to tell the funeral director, don't include pastoral compensation. I don't want compensation. I just do it. I get compensated in my normal life. Because it's easy to, to, that line with money is so dangerous, isn't it? Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. And we have really tried hard to make sure that we, what's given around here is for CDs, whatever. You know, there's, there's times to charge for covering the cost of materials or something like that. But the Word of God belongs to God. It's not mine to sell or profit off of. And the church has been greatly hurt in history by people pretending to speak for God and making a profit off the things of God for their personal lives. And that's what Simon the magician is trying to do. No doubt he wanted to sell this. Then if he gets this power, then he can increase his flow around that area and and his reputation and he can then start selling. You think he did what he did for free? You think his magic tricks were free? I'm sure he charged people. And now he can just add this and continue to charge for it. Look at Peter's response. Your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. Why? Because your heart is not right in the sight of God. You, you can't be part of this because your heart's not right. Anytime... Money is a motivator for ministry. you got to check your heart. And we've had that conversation around here. Um, 
there are sometimes churches say we got to do this ministry because we need we got to raise money so we're getting involved in a ministry because we need money to support the building or this or that it is money is never an acceptable motive for ministry people's souls people's growth people's lives people's families salvation those are the motivations for ministry and otherwise, things get messed up. Doesn't My money messes up so much stuff. You have neither part or portion for your heart is not right. It's not straight. It's not level. You're out of kilter. And he says to him, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Peter looks right into his soul. And it's... Poisoned by bitterness isn't really a good uh, translation. Really, it should be, you, ha- you are full of bitter poison. He was into the occult. He was into darkness. And his life was twisted. Getting into those things will twist your life, and then things that should not seem normal seem normal to you. I mean, when you're walking in darkness, it's amazing how twisted you get so that the things should be clearly, that are clearly sinful, so- somehow to you seem normal. Seem right. You get around certain groups or certain places and, and you say, man, this is clearly wrong, but somehow everybody is thinking it's right. He says, you're, I see you're filled with bitter poison and you're bound by iniquity. Hey, Simon, you got to pray that God will forgive you for this. That God will... He, says, he doesn't say, we got to cast the demon out. He says, you have to repent. You have to change your mind and turn directions and then uh, God, you know, therefore, he says, therefore the thought of your heart may be forgiven. If you do that, then you can be forgiven. And Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So Simon says, hey, Peter, pray for me. And what was he scared of? I don't want these things to happen to me. He was scared. He had no interest in God. And this is why some people say we don't think he was saved. Because there really doesn't seem to be any interest in God. And, you know, we would see these things today too. There's sometimes in an emotional time because crowds are doing it. At the baptism, someone says, hey, I want to be baptized too. Really not an interest in God, just caught up in the moment, something like that. So, you know, what is it with Simon? We don't know for sure, but we see some interesting things. Peter says, hey, you pray, and Simon says, no, you pray for me. No relationship with God, no understanding of relationship with God. And, and I tell people, when you come forward, when you have a need, I, I, I can pray for you. That's allowable, that's doable. We pray for each other. But you need to cultivate a life of prayer for yourself. You need to talk to God. You can't hide behind other people praying for you. What happens to Simon? Where does he go from here? Because it just stops, you know. Hey, he says, pray for me uh, that I don't, you know, nothing happens to me. And they continue to preach in the Samaritan villages. Where does Simon go? We don't know from the Bible. There's no more history of him. Church history tells us he he goes on to become the father of Gnosticism, Gnostic heresies. And he continues to just sort of grow worse. Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, writes about him. Uh, and many other church fathers write about him, and it's not good. So church history would tell us that he did not repent, and his life actually continued 
to, uh, toward uh, anti-God, anti-Christ things. So at this time, we'll uh, close our Bibles and just take a minute to uh, assess the challenges that we continue to face in the church. False teachings or divisions or persecutions or the love of money. Man. And it doesn't start just like somewhere out there in outer space. It starts in people's hearts, right? So the Bible says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. And there's only one master. There's one master that releases you from every other master in your life. Every other master will bind you and twist you and distort your life, distort your family, distort your thinking. Jesus Christ is the one master who will straighten you out and set you free. And if you don't know him, as we, after we close the service, I want to invite you uh, to come forward, you know, after everybody leaves. Just come up. I'll be waiting over here. And maybe today is the day of your salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.